0: This message comes from NPR sponsor, REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing. Visit your local REI Co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways to opt outside.
1: This is The poll's stories about the people and places at the heart of health and science. I'm Mike and Scott. Hannah Dixon always loved to travel. She worked odd jobs in bars or on farms to finance her adventures. Sometimes she was just working for room and board to keep traveling. Then through a friend, she learned some new skills, social media management and building websites. She became what's called a digital nomad, working remotely from anywhere. And she started an online program for others who were interested in this.
2: We help people discover what existing skills they have from their previous experience, or even if they haven't worked yet, kind of put together the experience that they do have and package that into a service-based business and then how to market themselves, find clients, keep clients, all that kind of stuff.
1: Her program is called Digital Nomad Kit. It's trained thousands of people and it's been especially successful in the last few years.
2: Since the pandemic, things have like tenfolded. It's like everybody wants to work online. I just see so many people moving into freelancing now, especially when their jobs are asking them to come back. We're getting people coming from corporate saying, F that, I would rather do my own thing.
1: Hannah says for lots of people, working from home for the first time during the pandemic brought a whole new perspective.
2: So there's someone not breathing down your neck all the time. You're not having to be watched over. Having time to be with kids. I know for women, this is a huge thing. You know, you get to be at home. Being able to take a stroll in the middle of the day somewhere you actually enjoy being, at least people who didn't work remotely before are now like, oh my God, I can't believe that we ever worked in an office. Remote work isn't just going to change the way we work, I think it's going to change the way we live.
1: For millions of people around the world, it already has. But the controversy over where and how we work is far from settled.
3: Well, I wish we were done with the whole hybrid remote return-to-the-office debate, but we are not.
4: What is the right way of organizing a hybrid office?
1: Remote work has brought lots of new opportunities, but also new challenges and questions. How does it affect productivity, creativity, innovation? Will people feel isolated and disengaged from their work? And how do you design an office when people are only there a few days a week? On this episode, what we're learning about remote work and the future of the office. Let's get started with digital nomads. Millions of people around the world work fully remotely as a choice that allows them to go and live wherever they want to be. Their presence is not only changing the nature of work, it has a big impact on popular destination cities. Take Mexico City, for example. Since the start of the pandemic, thousands of residency permits have been issued to Americans who work from Mexico. The capital city is now a hotspot for expat employees and freelancers who cross borders in search of a more meaningful work-life balance. Alan Hinich reports from Mexico City.
5: Today, I'm in La Condesa, one of the most popular neighborhoods in Mexico City. It's a beautiful area where tree-lined streets lead to bustling parks. There are street vendors, music performers, and you wouldn't go without seeing some of the most mouth-watering taco stands swarmed with regulars and tourists alike. I'm here to visit Allison Bishens in her apartment. She moved here with her husband and two daughters two years ago from Tacoma, Washington. The decision was a kind of experiment a chance to step back from the stressors of COVID lockdowns and reevaluate the status of work in their lives.
6: Is there a better way to have a family life? Is there a better way to have a work-life balance? Is there a better way to allow yourself at 35 or 40 years old to like recalibrate what it is that you enjoy or what you'd like to do for your job?
5: But making this leap was a big change for the Bishop's family. And it came with a lot of hard choices.
6: In the end, I think we have probably sold about 95% of our belongings. Uh, the rest of it is in a little tiny storage pod somewhere outside of Seattle. We sold our house.
5: Allison is a business consultant. Her husband, Spencer, is a lawyer. Since coming here, they've been able to work fewer hours on a more flexible calendar. This has left Allison with the time to develop her skills as a portrait photographer, teach students online, write a novel, and tour the city with their daughters, Sasha and Maya, who they homeschool from their apartment. So, what was it like when you guys first got here? Did you guys already speak a little Spanish, or did you we have to learn We spoke the here?
7: tiniest bit ever. But then no. no. we found this um, Spanish learning program called Duolingo, and we started learning Spanish very slowly.
5: I spoke to another American in Mexico City who's been working remotely for a consulting firm. He's been here for ten months after drifting around from country to country for a while.
4: I was young and I was like excited, and I was like, "Ooh, this is great!" But now I'm like, a beach is a beach is a beach. You go anywhere and it's a beach. It's water and it's trees and it's rocks and it's sand. And it's like, okay, cool. (laughs) But like, you know, who am I around and who am I with, and do I enjoy the space that I'm in? Like, because that's really what's important.
5: He didn't want me to use his name. Work is kind of like jail. It's been
4: like jail. I don't know why we all like clock into these nine to five offices and stuff. And, you know, subscribe to that. We work to live. There needs to be a balance. And I think Nomad really gives that opportunity to, to have you be able to reflect, have you be able to wander and gaze and engage in people, engage in new areas, engage in new cultures, new food, you know, take that space to, to actually live in the world and not just live in this cycle of going to work and going home.
5: Living in Mexico City isn't without challenges, though. The consultant told me that as a minority, he's experienced racism here. There are language barriers, and both he and Allison say that the wave of migration has led to gentrification and some resentment against foreigners.
6: I sort of thought we're good travelers, like we can plop down anywhere and kind of feel settled. And that was not true. Um, I think some people are happy that we've brought, you know, money here, but like not happy that we're here. Right. And that's okay. They're allowed to feel that way.
5: I talked to some Mexico City locals about the influx of remote workers and the changes that it's brought to this part of the city. My uncle Jaime Aronowitz grew up in Condesa in the 1970s, and he remembers a very different place.
8: Condesa was the neighborhood in the sense of very modest uh, and very residential, very quiet uh, neighborhood, very, very quiet. I used to play soccer in the streets, sometimes in the sidewalk,
5: He says it was mostly residential when he was a kid. Everyone knew everyone. It was walkable and full of parks.
8: It wasn't an expensive place, Uh, the opposite. The restaurants were the cheapest in the Condesa.
5: Today, it's a lot more expensive. It's full of restaurants, bars, nightclubs, and it has an international flair.
8: And when you walk in the street, you hear different languages, which was super strange in my time. And we never heard English or even French. Now it's... It happens. It happens every day. There is more desire to get a place. There are more bidding wars eh, to buy a place. And, of course, that eh, raises up the prices.
5: Inflation and gentrification seem to be on everyone's mind.
9: I bought a pack of gum here for 24 pesos. Imagine... In my neighborhood, it costs around 12 or 16 pesos or less. This
8: is almost double
9: here. Yes,
8: the truth They have more no? the This area gets a lot of foreigners. They can get by a lot easier because of the currency exchange. Mexico City is becoming a lot more gentrified, so everything is inflated. It just keeps going up. The rent, the food, entertainment.
5: Allison Bishens feels conflicted about the changes that foreigners like herself have brought to Mexico City. But she's grateful for the fresh perspective moving here has given her, especially a new outlook on work. She grew up in a religious cult where even kids were always required to work.
6: I was like 11, like with a demo hammer and like a hard hat, like demoing places for like $4 an hour. You were expected to just like work yourself to the bone all the time with no self, literally no self-care.
5: Allison hasn't stopped since then. She worked all throughout college and grad school while traveling abroad. When she was employed at a policy nonprofit in Washington, DC, she says it was normal for her to put in up to 70 hours in a week.
6: You are expected to just sort of ignore whatever's going on in your body or your family or your community or anything and just work, work, work. And uh, there were times that I was like at the office till two or three o'clock in the morning because I had to turn a report in or publish something.
5: I asked Allison if she had ever had any moments before moving to Mexico City where she felt liberated from her workload and the expectations of her family. She spoke of a trip she took to Eastern Europe right before grad school.
6: I was in Bosnia, I was in Sarajevo, and I was just like, I'm gonna stay here for six weeks. I got a job, I got a boyfriend. I remember it feeling like the first time in my entire life that I was not beholden to anyone.
5: Do you feel like there are elements of that freedom that you got when you moved to Mexico?
6: Yeah, I actually often feel it when I'm walking around. I'm tearing up a little bit. I think that when you're walking around by yourself especially, like you're not beholden to anybody. You don't have to do what other people want you to do. You just get to walk and you just get to appreciate. I try and really taste the coffee and feel it on my tongue and observe the people that are there and watch the birds and the trees and like the little lizards like climbing up the trees next to me. And I have a lot more time for that now. You know, there was this enormous influx of people from the U.S. and Canada and uh, even Europe into Mexico City during the pandemic. And I think a lot of people were having those same feelings that we were feeling of like, is this life that I've created for myself what I would create if I got the chance to start over? And so to some extent, what coming to Mexico City has allowed us to do is start over with like who we are like who am I as a person what is my personality because the people that I felt like I had to perform for they're not here anymore so now who do I want to be
1: that story was reported by Alan Hinich A lot of employees are rethinking the role of work in their lives, how much time it should take up. And meanwhile, a lot of employers are worried about productivity, how much work from home or hybrid models affect what their company is putting out. Raj Chowdhury is one of the leading researchers on this issue, and he started studying the impact of working from home long before the pandemic began. In 2012, the U.S. Patent Office
10: had a problem. There was a backlog of patents uh, that had not been examined for months and months and months, and Congress was getting really upset about it. So the solution was to get lots of new examiners to join the patent office or increase the productivity of patent examiners. And so what was happening on the ground was the patent office was finding it very hard to convince talent to move to Alexandria, Virginia. And they were running out of office space in that expensive city. So they decided to try something new, an experiment. Which allowed patent examiners to live anywhere in the country. And they said, Congress, please give us permission to do this for five years. So around 2017, when I started studying the program, they had to report back to Congress on how the program had done.
1: So when you looked at the numbers, what did you find?
10: Yes, yeah, so in this case, the, the productivity was a very, very objective measure. It was how many case files they had examined. We found that productivity, the number of case files examined, went up 4.4% when the individual moved to a location of his or her choice.
1: Is that a big number? Does that, is that meaningful? It's a
10: huge number in the context of the patent office because it means 4.4% more patents getting examined uh, just by letting people choose geography. We also found attrition went down and uh, we also found observable effort went up. So we were able to examine the different kinds of cases that the examiners could examine. And we found that the increase came from first round revisions, which take the most effort from the examiner, rather than the seventh or eighth round revision. So it was great news for the patent office. And I believe uh, that helped them make a business case to Congress for why this should be permanent.
1: What did people attribute the increased productivity to?
10: So I actually interviewed several examiners uh, to understand that. And the overwhelming answer was one of increased employee loyalty uh, so there was one woman who told me that raj for the first time because i'm living in a cheaper city and by the way the patent office did not adjust wages uh, so it didn't increase or decrease wages so if you move to a cheaper city now you had more money in your pocket you had more real income so this uh, this female examiner was able for the first time to enroll her kid into childcare Uh, There was a second gentleman who said he was able to move the family to Philadelphia. And that is where, in a hospital, his daughter was receiving the best treatment for her disease. And he was extremely thankful. And I think that increased sense of employee loyalty made them work harder. And that led to the productivity increase.
1: You have also studied an organization in Bangladesh that has more of a hybrid situation. Talk about that research and what you found there.
10: Yeah, so this is an experiment uh, that we ran with this group of HR workers. And what we did was for a period of nine weeks, every day we ran lotteries to determine whether the worker would be working from the office or somewhere else. And so it created a randomized pattern of office attendance, and in that study, what we find is that the workers who are about 25% of the days in person do the best. They do better than people who are less or more in the office. Uh, so 25% seem, in that setting, I'm not never going to claim that's the magic number for the world, but in that experiment, 25% seems to be the optimal number of days to be in person.
1: And why do you think that is?
10: So I think conceptually what we have argued is that hybrid, if it's done well, is the optimal because it it is the best of both worlds. It gives workers flexibility on one hand, but also mitigates isolation, which is a huge problem if you are never meeting anyone in person. So while there are many tasks we can do all by ourselves, independently, from anywhere in the country or the world, There are some tasks and some activities which are very dependent on in-person interactions, such as mentorship or such as building the team morale or culture. And for that, I think every single organization I've studied, they have occasional retreats where they bring people together in person uh, and people spend that time on social activities. So I think the form of hybrid I like a lot, offers workers flexibility with respect to location, but also occasionally brings everyone together in a way that builds the team morale.
1: That's Raj Chowdhury. is an associate professor of business administration at Harvard Business School. His research focuses on the future of work. We also talked to a researcher who's been tracking the impact of working from home since the beginning of the pandemic, when so many companies were just plunged into remote work without warning or planning. There were concerns that productivity would take a huge hit.
4: I think the number one lesson that became evident in 2020 when we locked down is that working from home actually works quite well.
1: That's economist Jose Maria Barrero. He is the co-founder of the Working From Home Research Project.
4: The losses from not being in person are smaller, I think, than, than we thought.
1: But there are some losses. Jose looked at productivity of call center workers, where it's easy to track how many calls are answered and resolved in a specific amount of time. He compared employees who were fully remote to others who were always in the office.
4: And so there, I think the lesson is that fully remote work seems to have a negative impact on productivity, anywhere between, I'd say, 5 to 10% less productivity when you're fully remote. So when you basically never come into the workplace, never interact with your colleagues.
1: And why do you think that is? What could be some of the reasons for that?
4: Yeah, so the evidence seems to point to frictions in communication. So suppose you get a a phone call and a customer needs something resolved, and it's not a 100% standard situation or not a situation that you see every day. What might you do? You might kind of consult with your manager, consult with a colleague as to what to do. And the fact is that when you're in the same room as your manager or there's somebody else with more experience than you sitting one or two desks away, answering that question and getting the answer and and being able to resolve the customer's issue is quicker and easier than if you have to text them or write to them. Texting and writing to them is, is ultimately... As effective, mm-hmm. but it's just a little bit slower.
1: Jose says other studies have also found a loss in productivity with fully remote work.
4: But it might still be worth it for some companies to have fully remote workers because they can save on other things. And in particular, they can save on workspace, on real estate. And so despite this negative effect, you might see call centers out there, for example, that decide to shut down their physical facilities Only have remote people because kind of the savings on the real estate side are bigger than the loss in productivity.
1: According to a recent online survey, the majority of U.S. workers are fully in the office or on location, depending on their jobs. With the rest, it's a split. 13% are completely remote and 30% have some kind of a hybrid situation. Still, it seems like a lot of companies are having a hard time choosing the right model. What are the arguments that companies are making in favor of you have to come back to the office? Some companies are making that decision, and it's obviously not going over all that well, but how are they making the case?
4: So I think what companies have in mind is that, yes, people might shirk, and they're not sure how to get around that. I think the moment you come back to the office and you start to have deep conversations in the office or the workplace about strategic decisions and and discussions and meetings, you will probably realize that those tend to feel better at the very least Mm -hmm. when you're doing them in person and not when you're doing them remote. And maybe the worst of both worlds is where some of the people are in the room and some people are at home. And so basically the experience is worse because unless you have a really nice conference room, kind of the interactions are different between the people who are there and, and the ones who aren't, kind of the ability to speak up is is different. And, and, and so I think that gets problematic. So, I mean, I think that those are the sorts of things that companies have in mind. If you ask me, something frustrating that I've seen is, is it sounds like companies in many cases are failing to make a strong case for their workers for why they should be coming in. And so I say this because in our survey data, people, when we ask them what is the best thing about coming into work, the number one thing they say is basically socializing with my colleagues and face-to-face collaboration. But what we've seen over the past two years or so since companies started asking people to come back in is they try to either use the stick, so basically more of an approach where you must come in a couple of days a week or else, Mm -hmm. or they try to use carrots that, that I think are not necessarily the most effective. So for example, telling employees that there will be free bagels if you come in on Tuesday, I mean, it might bring some people in, but that's not, in the long term, I don't think that's a great reason to get people to come in. A better way of getting people to come in is to tell them, hey, we're going to organize kind of all of our strategic meetings to be on Tuesdays and Wednesdays, and so we want you in on those days so that we can work on those together in the office. Kind of make a clear case for why the in-person interactions are important and trying to organize the hybrid scheme in in such a way that when people come in, they come in precisely to interact.
1: Right. So, you know, we'll have a meeting and there might be bagels, but it's not like, oh yeah, come in for the bagels.
4: Yeah. The come in for the bagels, it might work one week, it might work a couple of weeks. I'm skeptical that it'll work for the next five years.
11: Where
1: do you see all of this going? I think right now we're in this big period of transition where companies are trying to get a firmer footing in what works and what doesn't. So what's your take on what will work look like in the future, in the not-so-distant future?
4: Yeah, so we think the amount of remote work is going to rise again if you look 10 years ahead or 20 years ahead. And, and the reason for that is, the technologies that enable working from home are, if anything, going to get better. Mm -hmm. Because there's more working from home now, there's more demand for these technologies. So we think kind of the pace of innovation that enables working from home is likely to get faster over the next 10 to 20 years than it was before the pandemic. And so kind of in the longer term, we think things are going to start rising again. And and yeah, in 20 years, you might see maybe as much as 35, 40% of all paid working days being done from home. So the backdrop to this is, is before the pandemic, working from home was doubling every 15 years. Obviously the levels were very low, but it was kind of on a steady rise. And so I'd, I'd be shocked if we didn't eventually start to see another steady rise kind of after these gyrations we've seen from the pandemic kind of stabilize.
1: Jose Maria Barrero is an economist and assistant professor of finance at Instituto Tecnologico Autónomo de Mexico. Coming up, how do you design an office when nobody seems to want to be in the office?
11: The office is now competing, isn't it, with the home, which it wasn't before. That's still to come on The Pulse.
12: Major funding for The Pulse is provided by a leadership gift from the Sutherland Fund.
1: The Sutherlands support WHYY and its commitment to the production of programs that
12: improve our quality of life.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Noom. Noom understands that not everyone is starting from the same place and takes that into account. With their first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, you can find 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. This message comes from NPR sponsor, REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing. Visit your local REI co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways to opt outside.
6: Last year, over 20,000 people joined the Body Electric study to change their sedentary, screen-filled lives. And guess what? We saw amazing effects. Now you can try NPR's Body Electric Challenge yourself. Listen to updated and new episodes wherever you get your podcasts.
1: This is The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. We're talking about the future of remote work. One of the biggest worries about remote work is that employees will slack off when they're not in an office and do other stuff like laundry, chores, run errands. Or just watch movies and scroll around aimlessly on the Internet as the hours tick by. Researchers have a name for that behavior. And it turns out the driver is not so much where people work, but how they feel about their jobs. Nicole Leonard has more.
7: A couple weeks ago, I was at work trying to look something up for a story when I suddenly found myself reading an article titled Every Barbie in the Barbie Movie Ranked. It was the middle of the afternoon, and I had a mountain of tasks ahead of me. Deadlines to meet, audio to transcribe, emails to send. But here I was learning that stereotypical Barbie remained at number one, while Weird Barbie came in at 3rd, and Mermaid Barbie landed at 10th. What I was doing is called cyberloafing. It's when we spend time online or on our phones during working hours doing non-work-related activities. We asked people about their cyberloafing habits. And something that came up was that it often happens subconsciously, like you didn't intend to switch from a work task to something else. I will go onto Facebook just to check a message. I don't
4: remember going into reels. Somehow I find myself an hour and a half later scrolling through these reels
7: and why? Why am I watching these videos? Shawnee Pindex studies cyberloafing, and she says that's common. She's an industry and organizational psychologist at the University of Haifa in Israel. Sometimes I
9: sort of realize I've been cyberloafing, and I don't even remember when that instant was when I switched. And not only is it not always intentional, there's also the question of harm here. It's really not obvious that there's harm being caused at all.
7: The corporate world might argue otherwise. Cyberloafing costs businesses an estimated $85 billion a year through lost time, according to researchers at the University of Nevada. Excessive cyberloafing might lead to poor performance or create stress for someone who is now behind on their tasks. Some experts classify it as a counterproductive work behavior. But Shawne says there's now more research showing that cyberloafing has some benefits. For example, it could be a small break that you need to boost creativity and resharpen your focus.
9: It's a way to interrupt your stream of thought. It's an internal interruption. But this type of interruption also helps you
7: spice it up, change a specific line of thought and become more creative. This is something we heard when we asked people about cyberloafing.
4: Brain breaks keep you from running, screaming out of the building and never coming back. And seriously, like eight straight hours of pure, uninterrupted productivity is a ridiculous expectations. And leaders know that. Bosses resent it.
7: Shawnee says it could also provide an outlet when you're feeling bored at work. Boredom is a signal
9: that something is suboptimal. Something is not just right. And a change is welcome. You should. You should change something. And then when you're at work, there's different things you can do about it. And the most immediate thing is cyberloaf.
7: Research shows that sometimes we may resort to cyberloafing as a coping mechanism, as an outlet for our stress and frustration. Or maybe when we're on the receiving end of rudeness or aggression from colleagues. Ching Zhou is an industry and organizational psychologist and assistant professor at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. He says negative work-related experiences and exposure to stressful situations are common predictors and triggers of cyberloafing.
4: So if we want to really make people happy and productive and healthy in the workplace and uh, want them to engage in the right behaviors, then we don't want them to be exposed to those negative triggers that can trigger them to engage in unnecessary or extreme
7: Ji Jing and Shani teamed up to study one of those negative triggers. They specifically looked at email incivility. For example, a message that might have a lot of words in capital letters or exclamation points. Something that might come off as condescending or passive-aggressive.
4: I might be frustrated, angry, or just upset. And then I might act on those emotions to detach myself, to distract myself.
7: After talking to these experts, I wondered about my own cyberloafing. Did I spend five minutes reading a silly story about Barbie because I was stressed or bored? Did I need a mental break with something fun before moving on to my next project? Whichever reason it was, Shawnee says it's not something to feel shame or guilt over. And more often than not, she says workers typically make up for the time they spend cyberloafing. But...
9: We have gained something when we went to do things that were not work-related. We were able to recoup some resources. We were able to relax if we were too stressed or get re-engaged if we had gotten disengaged to begin with.
7: As far as what businesses and companies can do to limit cyberloafing, Shani says they shouldn't focus on the behavior itself, but rather what drives us to do it in the first place.
9: If you give your employees a good job with good tasks. They will cyberloaf to the extent that is needed, but they will cyberloaf less in general. They'll be more engaged. And so cyberloafing is not the problem that employers need to be trying actively to resolve. They should be making those jobs better. For The Pulse,
7: I'm Nicole Leonard.
1: This is The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. We're talking about the future of remote work. We're in a period of massive change in terms of where and how we do our jobs. And that has also put more emphasis on good
11: office design. The office is now competing, isn't it, with the home, which it wasn't before.
1: That's Nigel Osland. He is an environmental psychologist and workplace strategist in England. He says while working from home or other places is definitely getting
11: more popular, the
1: office still
11: has an important role to play.
1: Yes, you can work
11: from home and it's great for getting stuff out, deliverables, writing that report, getting those emails out. But what it's not so good at is innovation and creativity, developing the next new product and service. All the things you get from working alongside your colleagues and having those occasional water-cooler moments, I think you call them over in America, but bumping into people occasionally and having those conversations which which spark an idea and generate a a new product. But he says the office
1: has to up its game to be a place where people actually want to be, where they feel comfortable,
11: focused and motivated. I think the one thing that you certainly need to keep in mind is that we are all different, And we all have different requirements. Some people, particularly extroverts, thrive in stimulating, buzzy environments, whereas introverts might prefer more calmer and subdued environments. So the first thing I have to remember when I'm working with clients and helping them improve their space is to not just consider the space from your own perspective, but to try and put yourself in the shoes of other occupants and users of the building so that we can design a space for everyone.
1: Is it possible to design a space for all kinds of different people? Everybody is wired differently, like you said, so is it even possible to make a space where all people can feel
11: comfortable and like they can focus? So in an open plan environment, I think it is the biggest design challenge of all, is how we design for people's different requirements. And the only way I found to do that properly is by offering freedom and choice of a range of different work settings where people can choose to work, choose to be when they want to be, so that they can perform at their maximum and also feel, feel good. So we, we need spaces where people can let off steam, they can be noisy, they can socialise with their colleagues, they can meet and so on. We need spaces where people can hide away from their colleagues, where they can focus and concentrate and work without distractions. And the problem is we can't do that just at the desk. We can't fill a building with desks and expect everyone to do all the different tasks that they need to do during the day. So it it is a big challenge. Uh, we, We have to provide different settings. We have to allow people, give them permission to use those different settings. We are finding that in those more agile working environments, people do start to choose the desk, the location, the setting based on what they're doing and also how comfortable they are. Nigel
1: saw a great example of an agile work environment when he went to visit a bank in London. The office was split into two work areas, and each area had a different theme
11: based on the time of day. So they kind of had a a morning zone and then an evening zone. And the morning zone was all light colours, it was bright, it was airy, it was stimulating. And the evening zone was a little bit more subdued and darker colours and and so on. And then people chose to work where it best suited their mood and and their job. So they were doing the quieter tasks in the evening zone, whereas they were doing the interactive collaborative tasks in the morning zone, for example.
1: That sounds lovely, but I do wonder if people don't like having a. Assigned place to sit. Mm. You know, I have my little cubicle and (laughs) it's not fancy, but I like it, you know, because that's where I go, that's where my stuff is. And I don't think I would like it if I was told, you just sit wherever every day. Uh, Do people get territorial about, like, no, this is my chair, this is my (laughs) desk?
11: (laughs) Yeah. I mean th- th- this is like a, re- a really important point uh, and I'm, I'm doing research at the moment about how we attract people back to the office and whether un- allocated desking is maybe one of the barriers to that and and the reality is that again there's different types of people there's people certainly like myself and some of my colleagues and if we go into an office we don't care where we sit we, we we choose the space that suits us we say hello to people we meet them in the breakout spaces and the cafe and, and all the rest of it and we kind of like the fact that we can move around and be in different places we also like the fact that we can't be found by our colleagues sometimes we're hiding <laughs> away from them so and then you're absolutely right though there's other people that just dread that the thought of that to, to go into an office and maybe be sitting next to someone they've never met before or in a different place uh, and not have their stuff around them, their personal items, the photos of their loved ones and, and so on. So it just depends on the nature of the person. What we tend to suggest is that if people are in that frame of mind where they are a little bit more mobile and they're not so attached to their single workstation then you, you, you give them the opportunity to move around choose different work settings and, and they're much more mobile as a worker but you will always get an element a percentage of the workforce that's not suitable for
1: Nigel is a fan of something called biophilic design, which is rooted in our affinity for nature. Think a low-volume soundtrack of birds chirping, water flowing gently down a stream, or the use of natural light, the addition of lots of plants, even trees. Nigel says humans are wired to feel calmer in these kinds of environments, whether they
11: are a simulation or real it's all about how humans connect to nature and what's happened over the years over millennia is we evolved to survive on the african savannah but in the last hundred years or so we've been put in these boxes these office blocks these air-conditioned buildings and it's kind of quite distant from those original natural environments so as humans what we like is things like good daylight and good views. We, we tell the passing of time by daylight. We like to see scenery because we like to see out over the vista rather than have people looking, looking at us from behind. So it's, it's our affinity to nature. Now we introduce that into the workplace that can actually make us just feel more comfortable and, and feel better. Right now, a lot of companies might be reluctant to
1: invest in office-based design, especially if many of their employees seem to prefer working from home. But Nigel says having a space, a place
11: to work together, matters. If people just work from home, they kind of have less allegiance to the organisation and their colleagues. They start to think, well, I, I can work for any organisation because I'm, I'm just working from home. Whereas, what you want to do is create this sense of belonging, this sense of loyalty, embed people in the culture of the organization and the way you do things. And that's all good for both performance of the organization, but also for individual well being.
1: That's Nigel Osland. He's an environmental psychologist and workplace strategist. His consulting firm in the UK is called Workplace Unlimited. You're listening to The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Coming up,
3: why having good colleagues and friends at work matters. It actually just makes people's lives better. They feel better about themselves, they feel better about and more optimistic about the future. That's
1: next on The
9: Pulse.
0: Try Bluehost Cloud, the hosting plan made for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, fast load times, and 24-7 support, your sites can handle high traffic spikes. Visit Bluehost.com.
12: Support for NPR and the following message come from Betterment, an automated investing and savings app. CEO Sarah Levy shares Betterment's philosophy on investing.
3: No
7: matter the amount of money you have, it's always good to be invested. It's always good to start early. It's always good to save. And the power of being consistent in your habits is really the path to
12: long-term wealth. Get started at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk. Performance is not guaranteed. Humans are kind of overrated. Over on Shortwave, a science podcast, we're only kind of kidding We're bringing you the wondrous world of animal science to your daily life. From queer animal love stories to songbird memories, we're showing you how critter knowledge informs human science. Listen now to Shortwave, a podcast from NPR.
1: This is The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. We're talking about the future of remote work. For a lot of people, the relationships that they develop with their colleagues play an important role in their lives.
3: We know that people do better work. They also quit less often and they engage better and and more heartily when they have strong connections with other people at work.
1: That's Constance Noonan Hadley. She is an organizational psychologist at Boston University's Questrom School of Business. She says the benefits of feeling that you belong and having positive relationships go beyond just work performance.
3: It actually just makes people's lives better. They feel better about themselves. They feel better about and more optimistic about the future. They feel like they're really getting a reward intrinsically from doing those jobs. And that that's the kind of social fulfillment that I think everybody is seeking.
1: Constance is the founder of the Institute for Life at Work. She researches hybrid and remote work, team effectiveness and loneliness. How do you measure the benefits of these relationships and these small interactions? You know, I'm thinking about when I'm walking into work, I know for a fact that I feel better after I've said hello to a couple of people or, you know, there's this engineer that I always make a joke with and we've made the same joke for like 20 years, but we make it every (laughs) time we see each other and it cracks me up every time and every time I walk away thinking, (laughs) oh, (laughs) You know, and I do,
3: I know I feel better, but how do you measure that? That's a great question. And one of the things that I and other researchers who are studying workplace connections have been talking a lot about is we've got to start measuring these, these experiences more precisely. A general culture survey in an organization, maybe just asking people how well connected they feel, they don't tend to really get at this phenomenon in a really precise way. But the good news is in we've been studying in social psychology relationships for a very long time. So we actually have lots of validated scales that have been developed typically in the personal realm, but you can extrapolate them. For example, there's the UCLA loneliness scale is very well known in the clinical world. That can be adapted and even just three questions can be applied from that scale that will give you a much more precise sense of the connections that people feel. Now, to take your question one step further, that will get us to understanding whether they're lonely or not and how socially fulfilled they are in general. I don't know, a lot of organizations are getting at, they're really parsing out the specific type of relationships that you're talking about, where there may be just an ephemeral, quick point of contact with someone that you see every day. But again, if we pull in what we know from social psychology, I would say, you're right. You're not alone. That little joke that you're making with the engineer is fulfilling. It adds to your day. It's a little lift. It's a little touch point that can make our day at work more enjoyable. And we know this because there's been lots of studies about looking at people in communities, for example, and whether they know their neighbors or whether they go to the same coffee shop every day. You know, We like to feel like we're connected to other people and we don't need like a heart-to-heart deep long conversation to get that. But we do need kind of a rhythm and a routine and and the recognition that the other person sees you as well. And so I do think those kinds of relationships are really important.
1: Constance has done research with colleagues in Europe that found that those kinds of relationships don't have to be confined to an office. For example, they also happen for people who work in so-called third spaces, neither at home nor in an office, maybe at a cafe or a co-working space.
3: And we found that they were very socially fulfilled when they did work from those third spaces. And one of the most important Types of contact that they made, if they were working with other colleagues, like in a formal co-working space, it would be the other people working for other companies, but next to them, who, again, they may sort of pass by on the way to the communal kitchen. But also those people who out working in cafes and libraries, they were getting that little energy from just, again, meeting people in the neighborhood. So you can have those social connections, the light touch ones, with people who aren't actually in your company or your organization, but during the workday. And our research would indicate those still have that same positive effect.
1: It sounds to me like even when working from home seems like this is amazing and I get so much done, we shouldn't underestimate our need for those small connections and interactions.
3: Absolutely, and in our research home was the least socially fulfilling place that people worked from. The first was were these third spaces and the second was the office. And I love working from home, by the way. I'm not opposed to working from oh, home. No. <laughs> but, you know, you have to understand how to balance your interactions with other people out in the world when you're working from home. Like, so if you don't have a full household, then maybe you need to do that work from the cafe the next day, or maybe you do need to make that extra trip into the office to see people. So I think people are getting a little bit better about monitoring their own social needs. I think the pandemic brought those into relief in a way for people that they have never really paid attention to before. So yes, I think working from home a home can be great, But there's a point when you actually need to be around other human beings live and in person.
1: When people are introverted and they really don't enjoy being in a place, being in an office space, going anywhere where they're going to have to interact with others, if you're working from home, that might feel, oh, that's great for me because I hate going out and talking to people. But then I'm wondering if at some level you become unable eventually To do those things.
3: We have been looking at introversion and extroversion as a personality attribute in its relationship to workplace loneliness. And often it is the introverted people that feel more lonely. And we also find that people who are from underrepresented minorities and other disadvantaged groups are not in the minority can feel lonelier. And often that's actually in the office itself. So there's something about their personality or their background that's making them just not feel fully like a a true belonged member of that community. So it's easy to say, well, you know, maybe they're better off working from home then and isolating themselves from those office interactions that aren't providing that kind of connection. And, you know, I would love to actually fix the underlying problem, which is first try to figure out a how to, way how to integrate and welcome those people more completely. But in the meantime, I, I get it. I get why people are staying away from the office if it wasn't a good place to work. But what those people need to know is that that's a short-term fix to a longer-term problem that they're going to have. It doesn't matter whether you're introverted or extroverted. Everybody needs human contact and some sense of connection. So what we find is this Catch-22, where the people who are loneliest in the office tend to withdraw more and more from social opportunities. And they can do that by just staying at home and staying away from the office or by going to the office and just saying no to all the invitations that come their way. And for any listeners who are in that situation right now where they feel really comfortable not being around people during the day... I would just sort of, you know, take a little bit of time to kind of understand, like, is this really going to be fulfilling and satisfying for you in the long run, or does it just feel good in the short run?
1: Constance Noonan-Hadley is an organizational psychologist at Boston University's Questrom School of Business and the founder of the Institute for Life at Work.
4: I walk a lonely road,
8: the only one that I...
1: That's our show for this week. The Pulse is a production of WHYY in Philadelphia. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Our health and science reporters are Alan Yu, Liz Tung, and Grant Hill. Marcus Biddle is our health equity fellow. Alan Hinnich is our intern. Charlie Kyer is our engineer. Our producers are Nicole Curry and Lindsay Lazarski. I'm Mike and Scott. Thank you for listening.
0: Major funding for The Pulse is provided by a leadership gift from the Sutherland family. The Sutherlands support WHYY and its commitment to the production of programs that improve our quality of life. The Commonwealth Fund supports The Pulse and reporting on health equity. The Commonwealth Fund, affordable, quality health care for everyone. Behavioral health reporting on The Pulse is supported by the Thomas Scattergood Behavioral Health Foundation, an organization that is committed to thinking doing, and supporting innovative approaches in integrated healthcare. WHYY's Health and Science Reporting is supported by a generous grant from Public Health Management Corporation's Public Health Fund. PHMC gladly supports WHYY and its commitment to the production of services that improve our quality of life. This message comes from NPR sponsor HubSpot. Imagine growing a business with high-quality leads fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle. It's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.
12: This message comes from NPR sponsor, the NPR Wine Club. Get the world of wine delivered to your door. When you join the NPR Wine Club, you'll receive the stories behind every bottle and favorite NPR shows and personalities arriving in liquid form, like Weekend Edition Cabernet and Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me Zinfandel. The NPR Wine Club is a delicious way to support NPR's programming. If you're 21 or older, uncork a special offer at nprwineclub.org podcast.
2: All that sitting and swiping,
12: your body is adapting to your technology.